VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I am Akshatrati. This week, getting arrested, getting lucky, and finally, getting a climate bill. This summer, I went to the U.S. and spent three weeks visiting climate startups and talking to investors who give those startups money. One of those conversations spoke particularly well to the role that venture capital plays in funding climate tech. The model of venture capital is to make many bets yes. early on. Yes. Risky bets. Yes. Very few will succeed. Yes. What succeeds, how much of that is luck? That's that's a, a, an interesting question. I don't think it is luck. I don't think that's the right word. Chance. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, it's it's almost like it's not the right concept. That's Gabriel Kra, a co-founder of the venture capital firm Prelude. Now, venture capital is both loved and hated. Some say it's the only way to fund companies that change the world. Others say it is unaccountable, it can game markets, and it can launder reputations. That's the black and white version of the narrative. And you'd be surprised how many smart people buy into it. Gabriel is someone who is comfortable in the gray zone. He started his career in the 90s as a Greenpeace activist, even getting arrested on the steps of the Washington Monument as part of a climate protest. Two decades later, he co-founded Prelude with members of the Simons family. Their wealth comes from hedge funds, and they've been active in climate investment for decades. Prelude has invested in more than 60 startups so far, everything from batteries and hydrogen to solar and fertilizers. Now, venture capital is nothing new. Many of the services that you use today were made possible because some venture capitalists gave some entrepreneur lots of money to try some crazy idea. Venture capital for climate startups, though, is a little different. It's not just about the entrepreneurs. The physics must make sense. The chemistry must be sound. And the engineering must be scalable. Because you need to build physical things, what many call hard tech. Even if you get all those things right, though, there is a chance of falling into what's called the Valley of Death, a desert landscape filled with the skeletons of startups. This is where venture capitalists can help. The experience of building companies that at least some of these investors bring alongside their money can help climate startups escape the valley of death and grow big enough to cut a meaningful amount of emissions. When I went to the US this summer, I got a taste of what Gabriel sees every day, and I'm excited to share it with you in future episodes. For this conversation, we met up in Gabriel's office in San Francisco to understand how he makes a difference to the companies he invests in, the ways in which the U.S. climate bill boosts clean tech startups, and what makes the current climate tech boom so much better than the first one. Gabriel, welcome to the show. 
It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Akshat. So let's start with your story. You've taken sort of a, an unusual route to being a VC. Where did it start for you? Well, maybe not so typical compared to many other folks who are VCs. I was an East Coast kid, grew up on Long Island, went to school in New York at Columbia. And my summer of my junior year, I drove cross country. And I ended up, instead of getting all the way out to Palo Alto, where my sister was in grad school, I ended up working for a summer in Yellowstone Park and like working as a waiter so that I could spend my weekends hiking and discovering the mountains and the beauty of, of that park. So that's where my journey as an environmentalist, as a climate person started. And so like that's my motivation for doing what I was doing. I, I wanted to get involved and protect these beautiful places. So now back in like 1991, 92, I moved to DC and I got a job with Greenpeace. And it wasn't a glamorous job. I was going door to door canvassing for Greenpeace, but eventually I did some internships and I worked in the national office. And so Greenpeace back then and still was a practitioner of nonviolent civil disobedience. I was actually arrested in front of the Washington Monument in I think it must have been 1992, protesting the failure of the United States government to participate fully in the Rio Earth Summit, right? Like that was me back then. And then I went to school to get a master's degree in atmospheric chemistry. And the motivation for me to do that was I wanted to better understand the science and the processes behind what I was so passionate and talking about. I realized in that process that I didn't want to be an academic. I didn't want to spend the extra years getting my PhD. No offense to those in this room who have one. I respect you all the more for my failure to have the discipline to stick with it. But I ended up working in a variety of jobs. But in 2009, to fast forward, at that point, I'd been at a, three different startups, some moderately successful, some gloriously unsuccessful but a couple of hard tech startups and one engineering, a little less hard tech, but still, you know, technology focused. But at that time I was working in solar and semiconductor banking at Deutsche Bank. And I met, or I had lunch with the folks who would become the Prelude Limited Partners. I went out for lunch with Matt Simons and he and his wife, Laura Baxter Simons, were already active in climate. And we started working through and thinking through what kind of investment platform we could build within their family office. And it took a while, but by 2013, we had what was Prelude Venture. What is the vision? The vision is that by focusing your efforts on companies that can impact carbon dioxide or CO2 equivalents in the atmosphere, by making that your signposts, that's what you look for, then you can just, within that mandate, focus on the same sorts of things that people focus on when they're looking uh, at traditional venture capital. Great teams going after hard to solve problems with big market opportunities if they're successful. So if you think about our theory of change, something along the lines of by investing in companies who when they are massive, have a huge positive climate impact, then we have aligned financial and climate impacts. But has any of your startups actually reduced emissions so far? Yes, absolutely. An example? Well, I'm not the sort of person, unfortunately, who recalls numbers specifically off the top of my head. We have a company called Renew Financial, which was one of the first uh, companies we invested in in 2000, 
13 or 14. It finances energy efficiency and solar projects in people's homes. Several years ago, it was the equivalent of, God, like I said, terrible with numbers. If you want me to follow up, I'll get it for you. But uh, a million car miles not driven. You know, it was that kind of number. Another example is Pivot Bio, which has, again, I don't know the acres under management, but every acre that Pivot has its uh, fertilizer substitute, which is a, a microbe, uh, every acre that's uh, fertilizer that's avoided. And the Haberbosch derived fertilizer accounts for what, five to seven percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. We have some battery companies that are now starting to deploy. We have some solar companies that have, again, also had avoided emissions. So yeah, there's a decent, solid number that are coming. Many of them are at that inflection point where we can also point in the next few years, those emission avoidances or reductions will continue to grow. The model of venture capital is to make many bets. Yes. Early on. Yes. Risky bets. Yes. Very few will succeed. Yes. And some of those that succeed wildly will pay for the many, many failures that were funded. Yes. What succeeds, how much of that is luck? That's, that's a, a, an interesting question. I don't think it is luck. I don't think that's the right word. Chance. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, it's, it's almost like it's not the right concept. I'm, I'm having trouble with the word luck, and I'm wondering why am I having trouble with it? Because, yeah, in the simplest formulation, luck does matter. It, it, it plays a role. But I, I'm thinking of some specific companies that I've had the privilege to be involved with. And you could say, oh, they got lucky there. But then you can sort of fall back like what I really did was I chose the right set of entrepreneurs. There, there's a company that's public now in our portfolio called QuantumScape, led by Jagdeep Singh. And I think QuantumScape is his third or fourth successful venture, at least by financial metrics. QuantumScape still is, has a ways to go. But the original chemistry, uh, the original idea for the battery was nothing about what they eventually are bringing to market now. It was a completely different set of physics principles that they were investigating. And then even the earliest iterations of the electrochemical battery that they started in on were very different uh, from what they ended up with. So was it luck that they made those discoveries or was it an incredible team backed by supportive venture capitalists who saw that this was a team that was solving problems and pivoting and making changes uh, that, that succeeded? Was it luck or was it a great team? So another way to ask that question then is, would the company have succeeded regardless of whether Prelude bet on it? Because the fundamentals of the company and the people and the ideas and the grit and the combination yeah. and the pivots would have happened regardless of the money where it came from, whether it came from yeah. Prelude or somebody else. I, I think there's some people, I think there's some entrepreneurs who are going to succeed for whom the money is just a source of fuel. I think there's a small segment of those. I think there's a much larger middle range that says, yes, they succeeded. And yes, they probably would have succeeded with whomever backed them. But those people, those investors did something to help them out. I was involved in, and I'm sorry, I'm obviously going to use no names on these kind of descriptions. Sure. I held hands through, you know, six or nine months with the CEO. We were on the phone 
multiple times per week trying to sort out what was going on in the company. I wasn't helping with the tech, like let's be clear. And I had no helpful insights into that in the least, but I was working super closely with the CEO and the founding team to help sort of solve the problems or the challenges on the business side and on the investor side. And one of the most rewarding things of my career is when the technical founder, not just the CEO, said to me after we had this exit, he said, you know, we sat back and had identified a number of single points of failure, and you were one of them. Had you not been there, this company would have failed. So there's also circumstances like that. A mentor told me early in my career, you spend most of your time with your problem children. You spend a lot of your time as a VC helping the ones who need the help rather than the ones who are just crushing it, who just call you when they need some advice. And the most gratifying part is when you find somebody or a team that needs the help, not out of distress, but because you you know something or have a set of experience that they do not have. And that's the real joy and fun part of investing in seed and A round companies, because I've been there and seen it a bunch of times. And I can say, let's put that down. Let's not focus on that now. So that's at least for me, what's really fun about the job when I find those circumstances where I can add expertise. Right. In a way, when a company succeeds, the kind of people who get credit for that success is the people who run the company most of the time, is the CEO, is the uh, chief technology officer. If what you're saying is true, which is venture capital investors like you are involved in their success partially, then why do we not hear those names? Meh, because credit is being apportioned where it is due. (laughs) Like, let's be honest. I'll say it here. I'll say it whenever anybody asks. My job is so much easier than theirs. I have, to your point, which metric do you want to look at? They're solving hard technical, hard business, hard fundraising, hard HR, hard corporate development problems. And they are all in on it, right? They've pushed their chips to the center of the table on this company. And sure, you know, Silicon Valley has a culture of celebrating uh, or at least valuing failure. But, you know, there's nothing fun about working hard on something for two, three, five, seven years and then having it not produce value or having it produce value for somebody else. Like, that is kind of a hard thing. That sucks, right? And as you pointed out earlier, I have a portfolio. So if I get to be uh, on the stage uh, when they ring the bell on the podium, when they ring the bell on, on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, but I'm the guy in the back corner not getting any credit as the CEO and her team are celebrating, and I get to go to that dinner that night and somebody says, oh, was that fun, Gabriel? And I get to say, yeah, that was great. Like, that's about the right proportion of, that's probably more credit than I deserve at that moment. Okay, so the next thing we talked about requires some context. U.S. investments in climate startups can be quite neatly split into two eras. The first one, Cleantech 1.0, started around the mid-2000s. Investors plowed a bunch of money into startups and then didn't make much in return. A lot of the technology didn't work or couldn't scale. Then came Cleantech 2.0. That started in 2012, and we are still in it. I asked Gabriel what changed between the two eras of investing and what lessons we learned. I think a lot of things have changed and some things fundamentally may have not 
changed. If you think about clean tech 1.0, and let's use clean tech versus climate tech just because it's a simple lexicon. But if you think then about clean tech, and it really came out in the, you know, it really launched, say, 2005, and it reached its heyday, its peak just before the financial crisis hit. There were a lot of things that were more poorly understood back then, and a lot of things that were the building blocks of what climate tech is making possible that weren't around yet. So if you think about what it takes to scale solar, the venture dollars that went into solar, they and we didn't quite understand what it took to make a really big business and what were the risks of scaling those businesses. So those were some mistakes. And also on the solar side, again, the the volume of the capital that would be required and where it was going to come from, really a lot of that money just came from the Chinese government. This is the story of so many clean tech industries. The technology is perfected in the U.S. with its labs and its scientists and talent coming from all over the world. But then the tragedy for the inventors is that there is no way to get to the next stage, the bigger stage. Remember the valley of death? That's where these companies end up. China, on the other hand, has a planned economy. And that means if they decide that they want to dominate the clean energy market, they can do it. Its government pours money in at a scale no other country matches. This is what happened with solar. It's what happened with batteries. And it's what's happening now with hydrogen. It might mean disappointing returns for American venture capitalists, but for the world, it is a net good. Now, back to Gabriel. Fast forward to today, we now have the cheapest form of electricity on the planet. Most everywhere you look is either solar, wind, or some combination thereof. We worked a ton on batteries. A lot of money went into batteries, both electric and others, starting in 2007 or 8 maybe, maybe even a little bit earlier. Um, and a lot of those companies just flat out failed. The, the electrochemistry didn't work, the scaling didn't work, but some of them are succeeding. And also just some of the lithium ion uh, bulk manufacturing of those batteries that wasn't, that wasn't really even at that point ventures backed came down the cost curve. So now we have Lithium-ion batteries that serve one purpose, electric vehicles, uh, those things came hugely down the cost curve. The advances in machine learning and in computer, cloud computing, and in the capabilities that you can now bring to bear to solve hard problems, between 2005, when that first wave started, and 2015, when the second wave started, arbitrarily enable companies to do lots of things that they couldn't do in that first wave. And then the last thing that's different, if you recall the climate bill debate and the climate urgency in 2008 or 2009, there was not the urgency and the fierce understanding back then that we have now. I went to all the early RPE conferences. And And that's the advanced uh, energy bet from the Department of Energy. That's right. And from 2009 to the early parts of the next decade, that conference was kind of where everybody gathered who was worrying about thinking about clean tech and climate tech. And yes, all of those conferences and others had this sense of urgency. But now I firmly believe that people, corporations, governments, 
all understand, and I'm smiling because obviously our government has some barriers there, but by and large, there is a far different environment and it has flowed through to the capital markets. And I'm saying capital markets from venture early stage to late stage growth to projects, et cetera. Like there is capital available for great entrepreneurs uh, or even and good entrepreneurs to tackle really hard problems in a way that wasn't available in that first wave. So I think the core technologies have changed, the participants have changed, the capital availability has changed, the building blocks have changed, and that is what is leading to this second more successful wave of innovation. And it's not just on the venture side. Right. I firmly believe this is a systems problem. I, I love venture capital. It's what I do. I wake up every day, think about how to invest in great entrepreneurs solving really hard problems. Venture capital is not going to solve this problem alone. It's a structural problem of the economy. It's that we didn't realize for 200 years that we were creating this really massive problem. And it's going to take structural systemic change to solve it. After the break, I talked to Gabriel about the U.S. climate bill and an unforgettable conference we attended last year. And if you were wondering about the companies Gabriel invested in and the emissions they avoided over their lifetime so far, Gabriel did follow up with the numbers. One of his solar companies, Renew Financial, avoided about 1.5 million tons, equivalent to 300,000 cars taken off the road for one year. And the fertilizer company, Pivot Bio, has avoided about half a million tons of emissions. We'll be back after the break. Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. So the U.S. has passed its largest climate bill, funnily named Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. It's going to do a lot of climate things. Is it going to help startups? So... Yes. How? If we ended this conversation right now, like the answer is yes. If you are a battery manufacturer for long duration storage or for, I think it's also for electrical storage, but I've been focused on the long duration storage. There are a number of ways that it helps. First, there is, if you manufacture domestically, production tax credit, a direct pay production tax credit. That makes it economic for us to manufacture and sell from day zero. 
right? Right. Right? If you're wondering how these tax credits can help, let's take an example. Say you're a young company with a breakthrough idea for carbon capture. Congrats. Now you need money to buy supplies, hire people, and build factories. And that's where tax credits come in. Prior to the Inflation Reduction Act, the US government wanted to grow a domestic carbon capture industry, but it wouldn't give you cash. Instead, it would give you a tax credit, money you can get back on your income tax. Of course, you barely have an income, and this tax credit might seem useless. Unless, of course, you can find someone who does have a lot of taxable income, like a bank. They buy your tax credit from you, usually not at 100% face value, but at least now you have some cash. That's a long process, and you didn't get all the benefits. In the new climate bill, there is a shortcut for some. It's called direct pay, and you can cash tax credits directly from the US government. Something that Gabriel is a fan of. So that has all sorts of phenomenal impacts. One, it's great for the company. It also enables us to go faster and to bring down our cost faster because now we're saying, let's just manufacture as much as we can and sell these batteries. And we can do that sooner, faster, and get down those cost curves faster. It also, by the way, brings that manufacturer unequivocally onshore. If there was a doubt, this keeps it onshore. There's similar provisions in the supply chain for electric vehicle batteries in particular. I already know of a bunch of startups that are worse, not certain where they were going to manufacture. They now know where they're going to manufacture. And I also know a bunch of bigger companies are thinking through how do we get those materials, get those raw materials, get that supply chain onshore because they're going to have some of the credits. They'll probably go through a period of time where they can't quite take advantage of all the onshore credits, and then they're going to be able to bring them onshore. That's on the production side. On the demand side for, again, I'll stick with batteries for now, there is a standalone storage investment tax credit. And that, again, creates the demand for the company. So whereas before we were feeling that we knew our progression and we actually had a pretty robust and strong progression, now people are beating down our doors because now they know that they can afford the batteries. Before there was a limited number of use cases where people really knew it and believed it, and we believed we were going to grow that over time, that that market size has just increased. Now, since you got arrested, obviously <laughs> there have been plenty of environmental protests. If anything, they have grown in number. And uh, there are a lot more people getting arrested because clearly emissions haven't started declining and the level of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere keeps going up. Will you get arrested again? Never say never. But we were together in, at the TED conference in Edinburgh on climate, Akshat. And Lauren McDonald had the most powerful moment that I've witnessed in a very long time on climate, where she walked off the stage that she was sharing with uh, Ben Van Burden, the CEO of Shell. Disproportionately, in the global south, so many people are already dying due to issues related to the climate crisis, such as pollution, extreme heat, and weather-related disasters. This is not an abstract issue, and you are directly responsible for those deaths. And it was a staged protest, and you know some other members from her group came in, and they had a banner, and they were trying to shut down uh, an offshore oil project off the coast of Scotland. And 
they, the protesters, asked everybody in the audience to walk out with them. And I sat there wondering, where did I belong? Did I belong in the audience? Because I thought it was a really interesting conversation. It was Ben Van Burden, Christiana Figueres, and the hedge fund activists. So I thought that was a really interesting conversation. And then after sitting there for an extra minute, I said, you know, my, I, I want to be outside. So I walked out to join the protesters after sitting there really confused for a couple of minutes. Where did I belong? What did I want to do? And I didn't quite join them, you know, chanting slogans and waving my fist, but I also stayed out there for quite a while and only went back inside and watched the remainder of the session on video in the lobby. I said I, I wanted to respect their action and not walk back into the theater. That action sparked a lot of conversation, both at the conference and in the weeks after. Was she right? Should she have stayed? Should she have you know, engaged in dialogue? Could she have had a better outcome? And I thought, and I still think, no, she did really well. Like, I don't think she could have done better with that stage at that point in time, because hey, here I am almost a year later, we're still talking about it. We will never forget what you have done and what Shell has done. I hope you know that as the climate crisis gets more and more deadly, you will be to blame. And I will not be sharing this podium with you anymore. Lauren. That's just, uh, and that's a shame. Uh, and I'm, I'm yes. really sorry. Can I, it, uh, can I, can yeah. I take this? Thank you for reminding me, because we had such a great conversation after that. The entire conference was just talking about that. Yeah. Right? Like right. Suddenly you had this three-day, four-day four gala that was yep. turned into one five-minute window. Right. And most people were not on your side. I think that's right, yeah. Most people were like, well, there is the CEO of Shell sitting on a stage at a climate conference willing to get in a conversation with you, the climate activist. And what do you do? You get up, you call him names, you say, you have failed to engage with us, we don't think you will engage now, and we are going to walk out. Mm -hmm. So why do you think that is still the right thing to have done? Because of who she is and who he is and what are their respective roles. When I was on that side of that interaction, I knew that I was not necessarily going to convince that other person that they were wrong and I was right. But that's not the goal. The goal is to draw attention to the problem. The goal is to shine a light on something. And the goal is to get lots of other people thinking about it and talking about it. Ben Van Burden is paid a whole heck of a lot of money to run a very large company. And it's his job to be up there and to take that heat. That is actually one of the biggest things he's paid to do, right? And he's probably really good at it. He wasn't going to give up anything up there on stage. But she created a situation where everybody knew about this problem that she was trying to stop. And I believe that offshore field uh, eventually got pulled. Uh, so Yeah, so the protest was the for protest. stopping uh, the Cambo oil field, Thank which you. Shell was trying to uh, get um, permission for, and that's uh, in the North Sea in the UK. And Cambo oil field did not get its permissions, except... Now it's back on the table because of where we are with oil and gas prices. Yeah, well, that's the nature of being an activist. Not around climate, 
but I can remember a good friend of mine when I, I was still working for Greenpeace, my friend Fred, when the Japanese announced that they were going to resume whaling in certain regions. And again, remember, this is 1991 when whaling was still an issue. Uh, I don't know if it still is or not. Um, excuse my ignorance. But Fred was like, what? Didn't, didn't we win on that back in the early 80s? Why are we fighting that again? You know, <laughs> but that's the nature of the beast. The, this crisis in Europe or the, the global crisis precipitated by Putin invading Ukraine for his own reasons uh, that have nothing to do with climate, right, have created circumstances where a lot of entities, governments, companies, individuals have some really hard choices to make. And those choices have to balance out long-term climate impact with some real short-term pain that people are going to feel. This winter and next winter, there are very likely to be not shortages, but absences of natural gas for heating in Europe, and people will be cold and maybe also without electricity in many cases. And the solution to that, of the rising prices of importing more LNG to Europe, means other countries who don't have the economic resources that the developed you know, European nations have are going to have to pay more for their LNG or go without. So this is just going to ripple across from the most advantaged to the least advantaged communities, both within Europe and globally. And short-term answers of building more LNG facilities don't necessarily come online fast enough to have an impact, but have 30-year implications on climate. So you're always fighting the same battles over and over again, and we just have to keep working on it. That was a great conversation. Thank you for taking all the hard questions. I appreciate just the opportunity to have this conversation, and I think uh, we're at an inflection point. It's a wonderful opportunity to actually reflect back on the last 10 or 15 years and sort of gaze a little bit into the future. Let's gaze into that future a little more, because currently there is a lot of noise about a recession. If that happens, you might assume that it will doom investments in clean technologies. It happened the last time. But all the venture capitalists I spoke to on my trip left me thinking that this time is different. The clean tech boom with the backing of this new climate bill may even be recession proof. As for Lauren McDonald, in addition to the Cambo oil field, which is back on the table because of the energy crisis, she's now campaigning against a new gas field called Jackdaw, another shell project. Thanks for listening to Zero. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Tell a friend or tell a cousin. If you've got a suggestion for a guest or topic or something you want us to look into, get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero is produced by Christine Driscoll and Oscar Boyd. Our theme song is composed by Wonderly. Many people help make the show. Each week, I'll tell you about one of them. This week, thanks to Kira Bindrim. She's the editor of Greener Living, and she never kills a joke without coming up with a better punchline first. I'm Akshat Rati, back next week.